the Puritans on worship and church. When I received the email last year sometime with the invitation to speak on this topic, I laughed out loud. Uh, Puritanism is a 100-year worship war. And they have asked me to wade into it. Presbyterians, Baptists, Bible Church wannabe Baptists. <laughs> I, I don't know who else is represented here, but uh, one of my very simple goals is to not ignite any worship wars and to get out of here without any controversy. So that's goal number one, to get out of here without stirring any controversy. Uh, goal number two is to impart something to you of Puritan thinking on the subject of worship, the church by degree, and then thirdly, I trust something that will be of encouragement, maybe challenge, comfort, we'll see, but something of encouragement to you. So those are the three goals before me, the Puritans on worship and the church, and so how am I going to achieve those three goals? Very simple. Um, we are going to interview seven Puritans. All right? So William Perkins is going to, make, is going to show up somewhere here. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Thomas Manton, John Flavel, George Swinnick, Stephen Sharnick. Oh, come on now. There are two more. Uh, David Clarkson, and a surprise guest. There's a seventh, I know. <laughs> is going to show up here at some point. We're going to interview seven Puritans, and we're going to put before them Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And here is what we're going to ask each of them. We're going to ask them, basically, to say one thing just one thing about worship that we need to know to, A, really understand their concept of worship, and B, really make sense of the psalmist's admonition, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So each of them is going to have an opportunity to say but one thing. They will expand on it a little bit. Some of it will be their verbiage, some of it my own, and you can decipher what is what. And so each of them will have a shot at it, but they, there is a catch, and the catch is this. Whatever it is they say, all seven have to agree on it. So there, that's just me. To avoid the controversy, I'm just going to hone in, zero in on seven truths, seven statements, seven things, for lack of a better word, concerning worship that we need to understand to get enter into their mindset, to appreciate something of Psalm 29.2 and get out of here without any hurt feelings or controversy. All right? So we're going to start with John Owen. And in the back, they're going to bring up some slides. There he is. And so I will bring up the face that goes with the name, birth date, and the treatise that I am primarily referencing. All right? So John Owen, a name familiar to most of us, 
And so John Owen would like to say to us the following. I might as well begin by stating the obvious. And here it is, the one thing he wants us to understand. Divine revelation is the sole rule of divine worship. There you have it, from John Owen. Divine revelation is the sole rule of divine religious worship. Many people refer to this principle as the foundation of Puritanism. John Owen would agree wholeheartedly that this is, this regulative principle, is the heartbeat of Puritanism. Simply stated, nothing ought to be established in the worship of God but what is authorized by some precept or example in the word of God. Now, when it comes to applying this principle, we must insist upon a distinction. And I'm quick to acknowledge that this leads to some differences of opinion among us. But it needs to be said. We must distinguish between religious duties over here and religious actions over here. The principle applies to the first, not the second. Circumstances related to order and decency are religious actions whereby worship is performed and exercised, but they do not constitute religious duties. Therefore, when we implement religious actions, we are not obligated to produce express warrant in words of Scripture. Rather, we are to use common sense, prudence. That's all I'm going to say about it. We can all agree with the principle, although we might not see eye to eye when it comes to every detail of its application. All right? So there it is from the lips of John Owen. First thing we need to understand concerning the Puritan mindset as it pertains to worship, divine revelation is the sole rule of divine worship. It opens an entire can of worms, but we're not going there. The second individual we're going to hear from, Stephen Sharnock. And so there he is, 1628, 1680. His most famous work, not his only work, but undoubtedly his most well-known, The Existence and Attributes of God. If you've not read that one, I do encourage you to pick it up. I believe Crossway just came out with a recent edition edited by Mark Jones, The Existence and Attributes of God. And so Stephen Sharnock says to us, Thank you, John, you have stated the obvious. I'm going to state the equally obvious. And so here is the thing, the point I want to make. The worship due from us to God ought to be spiritual and spiritually performed. I say this is obvious because Scripture makes it plain. Our Lord declared, John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Apostle Paul declared, Philippians 3.3, we are the true circumcision which worship God in the spirit. What does this mean? I will tell you what it means. To worship God in spirit is to worship him with the inward operations of all the faculties of our souls. The faculties alone are suitable to the very nature of God. All right, here I need to interject and just ask Stephen Sharnick to be quiet for a little moment. Here is something we must grasp, not merely to understand Puritan worship, 
but to understand Puritan prayer, Puritan meditation, Puritan preaching, to understand Puritanism. We need to come to grips with what is known as faculty psychology. Show of hands. Oh, good night. Faculty psychology, and we've only got a couple of minutes to do so. Faculty psychology for the Puritans is simply this. That man is body and soul or spirit. All right? Body, soul, or spirit. Soul or spirit consists of faculties. Some of the Puritans will speak of a bipartite division of the soul. Some will speak of a tripartite division of the soul but they actually mean exactly the same thing. In a bipartite paradigm, the soul, the spirit of man, the primary faculty is the mind, understanding. The second faculty is the will, but the will consists of affections and choice. You got that? Mind and will, but two categories to will affections, or inclination, and choice. Those who hold to a tripartite view say, yes, all they do is isolate the affections and choice and say we actually have three major faculties, the mind, the affections, and will. What Stephen Sharnak is saying is this, to worship God in spirit is to worship him in soul. It is to worship him with the faculties of the soul. Because it is true spiritual worship that corresponds to who God is. God who is a spirit. And so true worship, true spiritual worship, when we're really worshiping God in spirit, the mind will be engaged and the will will be engaged. All right? How was that for two minutes or less? Faculty psychology. You've now got a little bit of an understanding of what it's all about. Back to Stephen Sharnock. As I was saying, spiritual worship engages the faculties of the soul. To begin with, it is an act of the understanding. We apply our minds to the knowledge of the excellency of God. When we behold His infinite virtues... In his works of creation and providence and redemption, our minds are employed with great thoughts of God. This is but the beginning of spiritual worship. You see, it is also an act of the will, whereby we enter into an intimate communion with God. This occurs when our faith is stirred by his faithfulness, our love is stirred by thoughts of his loving kindness. Our fear is stirred by thoughts of his righteousness. Our hope is stirred by thoughts of his truthfulness. This is worshiping in spirit. In sum, we cannot think of God but with the mind, nor love God but with the will. And we cannot worship him without the acts of thinking and loving. And therefore, we cannot worship him without the exercise of the inward faculties. By the way, I have written an entire book on this subject. 
the existence and attributes of God. It is not a work on systematic theology. It is an act of spiritual worship. I set before your mind the majesty of God so that you may pitch all your affections upon him. All right, folks, that's number two. The worship due from us to God ought to be spiritual and spiritually performed. We're now going to turn our attention to John Flavel. I used to say Flavel until I uh, completed my, my Ph.D. in, in England. I, I traveled across in 2001, 2002, and met with my supervisor, a man by the name of Tony Lane, Anthony Lane. He's a Calvin expert, Oxford grad. And I walked into his office. I'd never met him, knees knocking, unbelievably intimidated. And I just met this scholar immersed in Calvin studies and Puritan studies and early church studies. And he looked at me over the brim of his glasses and said, what, what, what do you propose studying? I said, well, I'm interested in the, in the theme of the fear of the Lord and how it relates to the doctrine of sanctification. And I'm going to look at the Puritans. And he said, no, you're not. That's naive. You need to focus on but one. I said, well, well, I, I think I could narrow it down to either John Swinnick or John Flavel. And there's just this awkward pause. And he furrowed his brow and looked at me. We say flavel. I don't know if it was the royal or majestic we, but I was converted on the spot. And ever since I have said flavel, John Flavel. And so here is what John Flavel has to say to us. I want to develop something Stephen Sharnick just said. As he made clear, when our affections are stirred by thoughts of God's greatness and goodness, we enter into an intimate communion with him. This statement requires some unpacking. And here's what's essential for you to understand. Here's what's going to come up on the slide. There is a felt presence of God, which no words can make another to understand. Now, do not misconstrue what I am saying. God is always present with his people in Christ. Amen. We call this his gracious presence. But do not misunderstand. There are occasions when we feel God's presence. These occur when he awakens those graces, faith, hope, love, joy, fear, which he implanted in us at regeneration. We call this actual communion. Let me give you a simple definition. God lets forth sweet influences upon our souls. And we, by the assistance of his spirit, make returns unto him. These returns are the stirring of our affections. All right, back to faculty psychology. So what have we got? Let's just stick with the tripartite view. It's more common. It's easier for us to grasp. You have mind. You have affections. You have will. So in the Puritan mindset, that is how the soul works. And ideally, how it is to function is as follows. The mind is to engage with the Word of God. And the Spirit of God will grant illumination. Whereby the light goes on, we understand the Word, and we behold the glory of God in Scripture. Those are pregnant thoughts that will then give birth by gripping and stirring our affections, which are the inclinations of the soul. And our will chooses according to our strongest inclination. That's how we work. 
That's how we go through life. And so these affections, and this is standard right across the board when it comes to the Puritans. We can make no sense of the Puritans without understanding their effective theology. It is everywhere. It is assumed that we understand what they're talking about. And so basically the paradigm is this. They affirm that there are two great affections. So use your sanctified imagination here and just picture love right up here. There are things we love. And why do we love them? Because we deem them to be good. All right, so far so good. The second is hate down here. There are things we hate. Why? Because we deem them to be not so good, bad, evil. Love and hate. All right? We determine an object to be good. We determine it to be bad. If we determine it to be good, we love it. If we determine it to be bad, we hate it. Here's the reality. At times, those objects we love or hate might be present with us or they might be absent from us. Make sense? So, I have determined that chocolate ice cream is good. I love chocolate ice cream. There is none in this room. I am separated from the object of my love. (laughs) It's pathetic, I know. Stay with me. What do I experience? Desire. Right? I run out of this room when we're done. I'm thinking about wrapping it up early. And I find a store that sells heavenly hash ice cream or something like that. I am now united with the object of my love. What do I experience? Delight. Those are the two inclinations of love contingent on whether or not we are present or absent from the object of our love. Make sense? Hate. There are things I hate on the calendar. Looming large is a dentist appointment. She's a lovely woman, but I hate dentistry. I hate going to the dentist. And as that date comes closer and closer, it's still a ways off. What do I experience? Fear. I am absent from the object of my hatred, but I fear lest it comes what? Too close. And then that Tuesday arrives. I show up. I sit down in the chair. All those crazy sounds start. I am now present with the object of my hate, and I experience what? Sorrow. Those are the six principal affections of the soul. That is how you go through life. As far as the Puritans are concerned, that is it. That is how we go through life. Now, in Puritan faculty psychology, the reality is this. The mind is what ought to dictate the affections, determine the affections. A mind engaged with the word of God. And a mind engaged with the word of God will lead to love set upon God. Therefore, a desire for God, a delight in God, and obviously a hatred of sin, and therefore a fear of sinning. And when we do sin, a godly grief, sorrow, repentance. That is how we are to function. And for the Puritans, that is what is going on in spiritual worship, that the affections are engaged. And when the affections are engaged, because I'm coming face to face with the word of God, and I am hearing of God's faithfulness, I'm hearing of God's steadfast love, I am hearing of God's 
holiness. The Spirit grants illumination. I understand these thoughts. The Spirit then grants inclination. They grab, they arrest the affections. And when those affections are kindled, John Flavel's point is this. At that moment, I am experiencing actual communion with God. You getting it? That's what's going on. Now, please understand, it does not bypass the mind. You can stir the affections with the right lighting, the right music, and the right sentimentality. Those aren't affections. Affections are always stirred through the mind by an apprehension of biblical truth. And so it is as we come face to face with the living God through his word The Spirit impresses that upon the affections. Love is ignited. Desire and delight follow suit. Hate is focused on sin. And as these are enlivened, strong or weak, I am experiencing communion with God, a felt presence of God, which no words can make another to understand. Okay, back to John Flavel. As I was saying... When our affections are pitched upon God, we draw near to him and he draws near to us, meaning we enjoy actual communion with him. Let me give you three examples. Number one, God lets forth his greatness upon us and we make returns in humility. Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? There is an apprehension of God's greatness. And there is a posture of soul, the affections, marked by humility, meekness, poverty of spirit. Right? Here's a second example. God lets forth his faithfulness upon us. And we make returns in faith. Hebrews 13. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does it get any better than that? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or you hear, you think of some of the things that Dr. Beakey shared with us earlier concerning the biblical doctrine of adoption and how it reveals God's loving kindness and faithfulness toward us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Those are stirred affections in response to holy thoughts concerning the majesty of God. Here's a third example. God lets forth his goodness upon us. And we make returns in delight. I will, we read in Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. To sum up, the chief end of every religious duty is communion with God. And therefore worship is a drawing near to God. Okay? You're tracking with all of this? Three down, four to go. Number four, William Perkins. Near and dear to my own heart, I have spent 
I don't. I could not tally up the hours I have spent with William Perkins over the last ten years, but it's been extremely profitable. And so now we're going to hear from William Perkins. It's good to be here. Although I'm not entirely sure why everyone keeps calling me a Puritan. He was a churchman, Church of England, a defender of the Church of England. Important for us to understand that this word Puritanism is complex. It really is. Uh, And so you think of John Owen's opening statement regarding Puritanism, that Puritanism is this principle concerning the regulative principle. Well, William Perkins doesn't really fit that. Uh, When you hear that word Puritan, it's complicated, folks. It really is. But when you hear the word Puritan, you need to remember two things. The first is this. Back in the 1500s, 1600s, it was a derogatory term. No one is walking around saying, hey, look at me, I'm a Puritan. It would be like someone today putting up their hand and saying, I'm a legalist, the legalists, we're going to have a conference next week. It just wouldn't work. No one is owning the term Puritan. Nobody wants anything to do with the term Puritan. It comes from cathare. Do you remember that? I mean, it was heretical sect. Was it in France in the 14th century, something like that? So it was, it was used in, in a derogatory term to dismiss those I disagree with and do not want to engage with. And so it was used in that sense. And then always, always keep in mind, it has a multiplicity of meanings. And so it has a political connotation. It certainly does from the reign of King Henry VIII right through to James and Mary, William and Mary, William of Orange. It has a political connotation. It has an ecclesiastical connotation. That is how it is primarily used. And so as Dr. Lawson told us this morning, that when Mary ascended the throne, what was it, 1553, and there's a, there's a reckoning, many Protestants, they flee, they head to continental Europe. One of the more popular points of destination is Frankfurt, And so you have this first wave of English exiles, 1553. They arrive in Frankfurt. They don't sprechen the Deutsch. They want an English-speaking church. There's not a minister among them. So they send word to Calvin's Geneva, send as a minister. Who's there? Who also has fled in 1553 from England? John Knox is there. And John Knox is sent to Frankfurt to become the pastor of this little English church there in Frankfurt. John Knox, because of his exposure to the church in Geneva, he revises the Book of Common Prayer. More in line with the worship that he has seen at Geneva. All is well until the following year. There's a second wave of English exiles. This time led by a man by the name of Richard Cox. He's the vice chancellor of Oxford University. And so he and his fellow countrymen show up on the Sunday morning to worship in this church, and they are absolutely scandalized. They have dared to meddle with. They have dared to revise the Book of Common Prayer, and it is all-out civil war in that church. Cox gains the upper hand, knocks and his followers off they go to Geneva. 1558, Mary is dead, Elizabeth is on the throne, All of the exiles return from England. Elizabeth never appoints to a bishopric anyone who has spent any time in Geneva. She's a wise woman. 
She wants none of, no one among her bishops who's been in Geneva. All the English bishops come from elsewhere in England. But the moment Elizabeth ascends the throne and all those exiles go back, that skirmish in Frankfurt takes center stage and you have one long 100-year worship war from 1558 to 1662. And you have Puritanism as an ecclesiastical movement, and it's all about worship. But not only are the Puritans fighting against the established church, they're fighting among themselves. Because there are many different brands of Puritans within the Church of England and exactly what it is they want to see. And then Puritanism is used thirdly in a theological sense. So it's used politically, it is used ecclesiastically, it is used theologically because the 39 Articles of the Church of England is a reform statement of faith. Any Anglican brethren here going to yell out amen? Well, I will on their behalf. Amen. The 39 Articles of the Church of England is a reformed statement of faith. You just read Article 17 on predestination. It's a reformed confession. William Perkins was a defender of the 39 Articles. What happens is during the reign of James I, you have the ascendancy of Arminians to positions of leadership within the church. The main bishops are Arminian. Why? Because they lean towards Episcopalianism, which is what James wants to reinforce in England because it's the most convenient means of ensuring his control over the entire realm. And so it is not until around 1608, 1609, 1610 that Arminianism gains the ascendancy in the Church of England, and those who hold to a more reformed soteriology are dubbed and dismissed as Puritans. And then really the reformed theology of grace is coupled with nonconformity in 1662. So if I have not convinced you of much, I trust I have convinced you of this. It's a tricky word, Puritan, because it's a derogatory term and it has a multiplicity of meanings. And so when I say tongue-in-cheeks on behalf of William Perkins, I don't know why I'm here, because he's not really an ecclesiastical Puritan, but he is a theological Puritan. And he is the father of English Puritanism, because he's really the father of an experiential Calvinism that marks Puritanism as a spiritual movement. So we've let William Perkins come in and be numbered with the other six, and we're going to listen to what he has to say concerning worship. So, Perkins, I've enjoyed listening to John Owen, Stephen Sharnock, John Flavel. Seems they've been reading my books because their remarks sound very familiar. Plagiarism, it didn't mean then what it means today. Let me begin by reminding everyone of the fundamental question. How is God to be worshipped and served? The answer is twofold. As we've heard, worship is inward, in that it engages the faculties of the soul, mind, affections, will. Fair enough. But I want to stress that worship is also outward, whereby our words and actions testify to the inward reality. And here's the point I want to make. Okay, so here it is. It's two cents worth. All the worship of God is spiritual, even that which we call outward, yet not of itself, but by virtue of the inward from which it proceeds. Outward worship is that which we perform in word or deed, hearing the word, 
celebrating the sacraments, prayer, singing the songs, adoration, confession, etc. It is the me by these means, these external duties that we express our affections, our love for God, fear of God, hope in God, and delight in God. These are the prescribed religious duties by which our affections towards God are acted. Now, there's a very important lesson here, namely, outward worship has no value in and of itself. We must guard against thinking that the mere performance of religious duties constitutes worship. It does not. There is nothing meritorious in these things. They are spiritual worship only when they proceed from inward worship, engaged mind, engaged affections, and an engaged will. All right, that's it from William Perkins. Number five, Thomas Manton. And a picture's going to come up. There he is, Presbyterian persuasion, 1620 to 1677. I was asked... Just before the seminar began, who is my favorite Puritan? There he is. Thomas Manton, John Flavel, a close second. I have gleaned much from many of them, but I just have this tender spot for Thomas Manton. His complete works fill 22 volumes. There is not one theological treatise in the 22 volumes. There is not one polemical work. In the 22 volumes, they are simply his published sermons. So they are a great place to go. Probably, probably the best example we have of Puritan preaching. Now, when I say that, don't think literally when you read Thomas Manton or John Flavel or any of these others, their sermons, sermons you're reading what they actually preached. You're not. You're reading their edited sermons. So as you read it is not how it would have sounded when they preached it, but you are at least, you are at least seeing in their format, in their procedure, in their methodology, the heartbeat of Puritan preaching. And Thomas Manton is wonderfully pastoral. He has tremendous series on Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, his sermon series on the book of James. Stellar. Three of those 22 volumes all on Psalm 119. He preached a sermon on every verse, two sermons on several verses, consecutively. Pastors here, put your hands up right now. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. We, we, we do not live in 17th century England, all right? I do not recommend that. Maybe a 12-week sun, Sunday school class or something like that, and some real gems out of Psalm 119, but that was a different day, different era, different context, okay? So we're going to hear from Thomas Manton. I was expecting William Perkins to employ a syllogism. Oh, that went over like a lead balloon. How many of you have read William Perkins? One. Okay, come on then. That was gold. William Perkins can't write a paragraph without a syllogism. He just can't do it. So Thomas Manton is taking a swipe at William Perkins. Not nearly as funny. We need to spend five minutes explaining it. All right. So I will give you a syllogism, says Thomas Manton. Major premise. Spiritual worship includes the stirring of the affections. Minor premise. 
Faith is the root of all the affections. Love works, hope waits, patience endures, zeal quickens. But faith has the greatest stroke in all these. So you've got your major premise, your minor premise, the conclusion. Faith is indispensable to worship. So where am I going with this? Here it is, the point I want to make. Very pithy to the point. Without the word, there can be no faith. And so again, for the Puritans, um, they, I don't know, I, I assume some of them got this from Calvin. They could have got it from other continental magisterial reformers, undoubtedly. But they hold unapologetically, wholeheartedly to Calvin's view of the sacramental word. And so this was a major issue for the Puritans, especially during the reign of Charles I, his Archbishop Laud, because Archbishop Laud had Roman Catholic leanings. And so in the 1630s, Archbishop Laud, he is preaching, he is proclaiming that the altar, the altar is the greatest place of God's residence on earth. Why? The doctrine of transubstantiation, hoc est corpo meum. That every time the priest utters those words, Christ descends and he is there in the elements. And Christ is again offered a propitiatory sacrifice right there on the altar for our sins. Whereby when you receive the wafer, you do so efficaciously for the forgiveness, the atonement of your sins. So that was William Laud's position. A time of the Civil War then. You have Lord Fairfax and other captains and generals and Oliver Cromwell's army, especially in southern England. And they're going into churches. And once in those churches, they are taking that altar and they are pushing it off to the side of the church. And what are they putting up there right in its place? A pulpit. And it's usually what? You need to climb some steps to get into that pulpit. Don't think that was to exalt the preacher. It was to exalt what? The word. The Bible lifted up, and there the Bible. I mean, if you look down in your typical Church of England parish church, it's in the shape of what? It's always in the shape of a cross, right? So rather than the altar here, William Laud, the greatest place of God's residence on earth, the Puritans pushed it aside. They erected a pulpit, and what were they declaring? God's word preached, the greatest place of God's residence on earth. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Just as God in the beginning declared, let there be light, and there was light, he declares, let there be life, and there is life, and he does so through his word. And so the word is God's communicative presence and the means by which the Spirit of God works in the people of God. As a side note, that's not all the Puritans did when they went into these churches. I mean, you can visit them today if you're in that part of England. Fairfax's men, when they went in, they would go up the wings of the church and there you'd have all the murals and paintings and images and they toppled those images and they took their broad swords and they severed the heads from all of those images and they scratched out the faces on all the paintings on the walls you can go there today and you'll see these great just slices through the walls and these paintings the body but no head it's scratched out from 350 years ago when these Puritans went through there, because for them it was rampant idolatry. They just could not divorce the art from the idolatry, the art from the idolatry. And so they were quite, what's the word? Over the top? I don't know. Zealous. Was it a misplaced zeal? 
I don't know, who are we to judge for 350 years later, right? Different time, different place, different context, different era. But uh, they thought that was necessary in order to break the back of idolatry that was so rampant in England. But the pulpit front and center because of this belief, sacramental word, again, returning to Thomas Manton, without the word, there can be no faith. And so he says, the duties of worship, celebrating the sacraments, hearing the word, singing psalms, praying, are empty shells if they are not accompanied by stirred affections. The affections cannot be stirred unless the mind apprehends God's greatness and goodness. The mind cannot apprehend God's greatness and goodness apart from faith. Faith lies dormant apart from God's word. For this reason, the word of God is central to the worship of God. Pretty rock-solid logic as far as I'm concerned. When we worship, therefore, we read the Bible. We preach the Bible. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We confess the Bible. Why? So that we hear the Bible. God's Word is the only means by which God's Spirit produces all His great effects in the souls of men. All right. Thomas Manton has a lot to say on the subject, but we're going to shut him down right there. That's all we have time for. We're moving on to number six. David Clarkson, not as well known. He co-pastored in London with John Owen. So congregationalist, independent in his convictions. So Clarkson says to us, I'm going to run with what Thomas just said. Spiritual worship involves the mind, thinking, the will, loving. This is impossible without faith, and faith is only created and cultivated by means of God's word. Well, the implication is obvious. It means that God's word is indispensable to worship. It also implies, and here's the point he's going to make, the most wonderful things done on earth are done in public worship. Now, he says all of this in a polemical work. It's interesting. If you're ever able to dig it up and read it, I recommend it to you. His argument is basically this, his words. As the Apostle Paul writes, Christ gave the apostles. You're going to have to follow his logic here. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4. These gifts are the purchase of Christ crucified and the gifts of Christ triumphant. Please notice that they are public gifts. They're not private. They are public gifts, meaning they are public ordinances. Having ascended, he gave these public ordinances to his people. Clearly, this implies that public worship is to be preferred before private worship. The presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream. In public, becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. So let me just interject here. Something is equally important. I was interested to see that this did not make the cut when it came to all the different themes and motifs for this conference. Perhaps they knew it was a hot potato. It would be too controversial. The Sabbath and Sabbatarianism. There are two, there are two main found building stones in, that are foundational to Puritan thinking when it comes to the Sabbath. The first is this, is there Trinitarianism? And so they will actually argue, I have seen this in numerous places, they will argue that observing the Sabbath is Trinitarian. 
The Father created the day. The Son changed the day. The Spirit sanctifies the day, O Queen of Days. And this gives rise to their very strict Sabbatarianism. All right, we might just want to put that over there and not talk about that for now. The other, which I think is fascinating, and I really do think they're onto something here, is this. If you're tracking with what they're saying concerning the instrumentality of the world, word and its centrality to worship, and if you're now getting what Clarkson is saying concerning public ordinances and what that implies for public worship, then the obvious inference in the Puritan mindset is this. Well, if God's Spirit primarily works by means of God's Word, uh, therefore the Spirit primarily works by means of the preaching of God's Word and the worship of God's people. Therefore, it's not a long leap, the day on which that takes place is particularly special. It means I should prepare for that day. Get ready for it. The market day of the soul, as they would call it. And on that day, my primary concern, my principal concern, should be to gather together with the people of God, prepared for that moment. And afterwards, seeking to impress that public worship down upon the soul so that I maximize this market day of the soul upon which the Spirit of God delights to work unlike on any other day of the week. Agree with them. Disagree with them. I'm not going to talk about it with anybody afterwards because remember one of my main goals to avoid all controversy. But if you're going to read the Puritans, you're going to come, you're going to hit your head against this all the time. Constantly, constantly, constantly. As a matter of fact, when you read some of their biographies and they talk about their conversion experience, their very Augustinian conversion experience, right? So Augustine, he's eating those pears and he's just, you know, convicted. Why? Woe is me because I've done it for no other reason than I took delight in it. They're going to, they're going to adopt that model. And they're going to, in their spiritual biographies, recount just what terrible sinners they are. And as they're going on about, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, and you're expecting them just to air their dirty laundry, more often than not, what comes up is this, I'm a terrible Sabbath breaker. That's all you got. I'm a terrible Sabbath breaker. But this, again, is just the mindset they are living in. And there are two fountains feeding it, and you need to wrestle with both as you engage the Puritans on their terrain and understand what's driving it, why, maybe what we can learn from it, maybe what we want to back away, or at least maybe tweak a little bit. But there you have it. Back to David Clarkson. We must never lose sight of the consummate worth of corporate worship. God is always present with us. True, I'm not disputing it. But he is especially present when his people are gathered to worship. Here. The Lord speaks life to dry bones and raises dead souls out of the grave of sin. Here, he gives sight to those who are born blind. Here, he cures diseased souls with a word. Here, he dispossesses Satan and casts unclean spirits out of the souls of sinners. Here, he overthrows principalities and powers and vanquishes the powers of darkness. Here, he turns the whole course of nature and the souls of sinners, makes old things pass away, and all things become new. All right? 
You can check David Clarkson off your list. Six for six. We come finally to the seventh guest speaker, George Swinnick. So he's going to come up on the screen now, and I think his year, 1627 to 1673. So I did my Ph.D. dissertation on George Swinnick. I was strolling, perusing a little RHB bookstore in Port Colborne, Ontario, in the year 2000. My wife grew up near Niagara Falls. I was down visiting my in-laws, and uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, and this bookstore, one of my favorite places to go, and I was considering a Ph.D., already started the enrollment process, and was walking through this little bookstore, and then just my sheer horror... These five volumes, it's ghastly orange color. Have you seen them? Yeah, Banner of Truth edition. I don't know. Who chose that color? George Swinnick. But I just started to thumb through it, and I fell in love with George Swinnick, and that was it. And I did my PhD on George Swinnick. I have searched high and low for a portrait rendering of George Swinnick, never been able to find one. Well, I'm doing a Google search. I said, well, I'm just going to search one more time. This picture comes up. I sure hope it's not him. Because <laughs> I've, I've sort of got pictured in my mind Jordan Peterson with a wig. That's who I'm thinking, George Swinnick. But I don't know. Maybe that is him. Lord bless him. All right? 60, I feel a little deflated when I saw that. Anyway. The Christian man's calling fills half of his literary corpus. Five volumes, his works collected in the Banner of Truth edition. Two and a half volumes, the Christian man's calling. So here we go, George Swinnick. Well, it falls on me to deliver the final word. I happily confess that I am pleased with everything I've heard from my fellow Puritans. We are to worship God in spirit with the faculties of the soul. This means that inward worship is true spiritual worship and outward worship, religious duties, become spiritual worship when it flows from holy thoughts and affections. But I want to add an important word of clarification. Namely, there are in fact two kinds of outward worship. We are said to worship God either with respect to the duties which are more directly to be performed to him, public worship, or in our whole conversation. Now, as you read the Puritans, understand they use words differently than we do. Conversation means life. All right? In 16th, 17th century English. In our whole life. A great deal has been said about the first. I want to make sure we do not neglect the second. Here is my point. A Christian's life is a constant hymn to God or a continued act of worship. That's gold right there from George Swinnick. Almost half of my literary output is devoted to this subject. Whether our activities are natural or civil, we make them sacred. Whether our company is good or bad, we mind our holy calling. Whether we are riding or walking, whether we are at home or abroad, whether we are buying or selling, eating or drinking, whatever we are doing or wherever we are going, we have an eye to godliness. We worship God in the inward motions of the heart and in all the outward actions of the life. 
as we pursue godliness. Seven points regarding worship and how the Puritans would have understood Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. All right, I had three goals. One, shed some light on the Puritans. All right, check that off. Not bad, I hope. Encourage you a little bit. Give you something to think about. Food for thought. All right, amen. And the third, avoid controversy. So I dare open it up for questions. Hold, hold that. Hold that just for a moment. Just for a moment to see if I can eat up the rest of the time. It, let me just give you four expressions then to jot down. If this is something that really interests you, these are, these are the four you really need to get your minds around, grapple with, to enter into just the essence of Puritan worship. What they mean by these. Number one, religious duties. It just looms large, inescapable, religious duties. Two, pregnant thoughts. Pregnant thoughts. Great expression. Stirred affections. And number four, transform lives. And if we get our minds around what they say concerning those four, well, there is plenty of food for the soul there, undoubtedly, and plenty to glean from their example as it pertains to worship. And so in five minutes, with fear and trembling, any questions? <laughs> yes, sir. Related to what we've been talking about, I reserving the right, of course, to say we're not going there and moving on. Okay. How important is it in the modern church to distinguish between affections and emotions? Essential. Absolutely. Because emotions, I get emotional listening to Yo-Yo Ma play Gabriel's oboe. It's not worship. I get emotional just listening to the music for, for most of the hymns I grew up with. It's not worship. It's sentimentality and longing for days that have just escaped me and the fact that I'm getting older, right? Um, and so it is. Emotions can be stirred through the senses. The five syncportes, the Puritans would have called them. And, uh, but affections, religious affections, and this is what Edwards is arguing for in religious affections, so Edwards gets that from John Flavel, not original. Um, and John Piper gets desiring God, desiring from that paradigm of affections, desiring God. I mean, that's the stream of it all. And so emotions, yeah, affections, the mind is always engaged, and it is always a mind that is uh, focused on the Word of God. So that's how you know it's a religious affection. So you know it's a religious affection on the basis of its origin, it has come mediated by God's word, and on the basis of its fruit, it leads to obedience, it actually, which is Edward's punchline in religious affections. It leads to a changed life. In the back. Yes, sir. Uh, how would you uh, place Thomas Edwards Yeah, you can't, that faculty psychology then is fundamental to what the Puritans call the threefold state of man or the fourfold state of man, fundamental to understanding uh, the nature of the will 
Calvin lines up here. Luther does, but Luther just isn't as precise in his language. and It can be unhelpful sometimes. It's Augustinian. And so it is that idea. So mind, understanding, will. For the Puritans, that is the, um, the natural image of God and man. We're rational beings. Mind, affections, will. The moral or supernatural image is the mind, affections, will, characterized by knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. They're getting that from Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. So they're getting that from Augustine as well. So supernatural gifts, right? Knowledge, righteousness, holiness. The natural gifts, mind, affections, will. This constitutes then the moral image, natural image of God. What happens at the fall? The moral image is completely lost. Knowledge is replaced with ignorance. Righteousness with unrighteousness. Holiness with unholiness. What happens to the natural image? It's still there, but the mind is now what? It's darkened. The affections are now what? disordered and hardened, and the will is now what? Enslaved. Enslaved to what? A darkened mind and a hardened heart. So that's why Edwards and others, and they're very careful in this language, they argue for a bound free will. No one in that tradition denies free will. Everyone has free will. It's not the issue. The issue is what do you want? That's what's bound. The affections, the inclination of the soul. So that's what Edwards is arguing there. So that faculty psychology, you cannot make sense of Edwards without faculty psychology. It is just assumed. It's assumed from any, everyone from mid-1500s right through to the 1700s. Was that helpful? Yeah. And so Calvin is arguing basically the same thing as well. And Luther is in a roundabout way, but his terminology is less than helpful. Yeah. Brother, you're up. Okay. Yeah. Um, another question about this whole issue of faculty psychology. This is the first time I've heard that phrase. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. There, there, there's not a great deal penned on it. You know, if I might be so bold, I do have chapters in books where I get into it. My dissertation, my dissertation's on the subject, but it's, you know, my mom has read my dissertation. I'm actually not sure she read the whole thing. I'm not sure who else has. It's hard slugging. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's a chapter. I have a little book on John Flavel called, um, uh, <laughs> what's it called? <laughs> the Inner Sanctum of Puritan Piety, John Flavel's Doctrine of Mystical Union with Christ. There's a chapter in there which describes his faculty psychology and the affections. The Inner Sanctum of Puritan Piety, John Flavel's Doctrine of Mystical Union with Christ. Yeah. Yes, sir. We'll see. Number four, we would do uh, Transform lives. Yeah, George Swinnick. Transform lives. Never forget. Okay, one more question. Yeah, brother. Um, you know the three I cited, um, the three examples under John Flavel? I think that's a good sampling then. You're not looking for the words, affections, emotions. You're looking for the actual things as they are united to God. The best place is the book of Psalms. It's what the book of Psalms is. And that's why it's so important, the poetry, um, because it engages the heart on a certain level and helps us to articulate things that's sometimes difficult to express. But you see it in the psalmist then, he's always coming back to who God is. And whether it's in a season of confidence or lament, 
you will always find that element then of delight, desire, and love for God. Complete dissatisfaction with his state as it pertains to his sin, and it's always connected to divine truth. The book of Psalms is the place to go. Okay, sister, one more time. Your hand was up there dutifully. One more. And this is it. Oh, I see. I see. The, to a great extent, uh, Richard Baxter would be an exception. John Bunyan would be an exception. To a great extent, your Puritan ministers in the 1640s, 1650s, 1660s, they're graduates of university. Um, that's just standard. Most of them Cambridge. It was the hotbed for Puritanism. Not so much Oxford until the protectorship when Cromwell took over Oxford, appointed Owen. Prior to that, Cambridge was the place to go. Christ College, Emmanuel College, these were the the hotbed for Puritanism. And so typically, you would go up to to Cambridge 13 years of age as a boy. Sorry, sisters, it just wasn't open in those days. 13, 14 years of age, you'd have been to grammar school. You'd already have your languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin would be down. Uh, That was a prerequisite. And up you would go to study rhetoric, logic, the classics, and your tutor would lead your theological study. And then once you had completed your undergraduate, your BA, and MA, you had three options. You had the legal, you had the medical, you had the church. And so they're getting it in a grammar school level. They're getting the, the mental framework. They're reading theology. And then at the university, it becomes front and center part of their, uh, their reading requirement. And they're in chapel every day when they're hearing William Perkins preach. And so this was, a, Dr. Beakey mentioned it earlier, a, a friend of mine, we, we went through some of the old archives, college libraries in Cambridge, and we found 40 sermons of William Perkins in student common books in shorthand. 20 of them never made it into his works. So we've transcribed all of these and put them in a book, and they're coming out. But So you're 13, 14 years of age, and you're like, uh, John Owen, The Mortification of Sin, wrote that for his students, 13-year-olds. How humbling is that? <laughs> Ouch. All right, let me pray for you, and then we'll wrap it up. Our Heavenly Father, we do pause in your presence. We worship you because every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. And we ascribe to you all power and glory and honor and praise. We thank you for the opportunity to be here We praise you for the common bond of fellowship we enjoy in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for faithful saints of old. We do acknowledge we can learn from their example, their highlights, their lowlights, their successes, and their failures. We pray that we might take these things to heart and be better equipped to serve you for your glory in these days. In the matchless name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.